This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Occasionally I would get a second job at a different restaurant and I would always leave after a couple months because I just felt like the friction between front of house and back of house, back of house normally being men, was so ludicrous. I mean, it's it just felt so childish to me. You're in this business trying to have other people have a good time, mm. and you can't do that if you're fighting. Charlotte Robertson is a force to reckon with. She is the director of operations for Jose Andres's Think Food Group. She runs all the restaurants at Mercado Little Spain in New York's Hudson Yards. And she's involved in every aspect of the restaurant as restaurants evolve every single day. To Charlotte, passion, compassion, and empathy are really important ingredients in a restaurant's success. She's lived all over the world, grew up in Japan, and all of this has helped her love the industry like few others do. vast culinary landscape we share. We are all carving out a place for ourselves. Each of us, in our own way, is a one-woman kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold, and welcome to my kitchen. Charlotte, it is such a pleasure to have you on One Woman Kitchen. I'm thrilled and very, very excited because we're living in very exciting times, actually, for women in the food world. And we have wonderful, remarkable women chefs and food writers, restaurateurs, cooking teachers, but we do not have anyone with your remarkable experience as the director of operations and for Jose Andres, no less, maybe the world's most famous chef and humanitarian of the moment. So it is such a pleasure to to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm super excited to be here. Great. So let's unpack. When did you start even imagining a world, a life in the food world? I like many people, waitress in college, I needed a way to make money because my parents felt like I spent too much money, so they stopped giving it to me. <laughs> <laughs> and there was this, I grew up in Japan, and there was this great sushi restaurant in Charlottesville, Virginia, that was run by this man named Atsushi Miura. And he had this rock club in the basement, and it was a sushi restaurant on top. And it was such a cool spot, and I had never waitressed before. But I really wanted to be a part of it. And so I wa- I had dinner there with some friends and I walked up to him at the end and I told him, you know, how delicious the meal was and was he hiring? And he sort of looked at me and he said, do you have any experience? And I said, well, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> and he hired me for some reason, but I don't know why, but I'm so grateful that he did. And I never really thought it would be a career. But then after I graduated from college, I was working at this little French restaurant in Charlottesville, Virginia, that was quite well known in the area. What was was, the name? It was called the CNO Restaurant. Just a phenomenal place. It's still Mm. in business. I think it opened 1982 or 84. And it's still around. Oh, my gosh. It is the best restaurant ever. And I worked there for eight years. And I was sort of trying to decide what to do with my life. And I had this conversation with one of the other waitresses who is maybe 10 years older than me. And she just said this 
thing that really struck a chord. She said, you know, it's not often that you have this ability to make a meal something that someone remembers for years. You could make it the most special birthday, or it could just be a dinner out, and they could talk about it for years afterwards. And people do, don't they? Yeah, they do. <laughs> and I just, I thought of of that, and it just really struck a chord with me, and I I fell in love with the industry, and I decided to become a manager, so... Okay. I mean, one of the great joys, of course, doing this show is you and I hardly know each other. I certainly know about you. But you just said so many things that, you know, are fascinating. Number one is, why did you grow up in Japan? Oh, (laughs) Um, my father worked for the State Department. And so in the 70s, he and my mother decided to leave the States because of all the kind of social unrest that was happening. They wanted to move out. And they were English teachers for years. And in 1975 or 76, they moved to a tiny little town in Japan called Komatsu, which is where the bulldozers are made. Mm. And they were the English teachers for the Komatsu company. And in 1977 or so, they got lonely. And so they decided to have me. (laughs) Um, And when my dad went to the consulate in Kobe to register me, he saw the woman behind the desk and thought, That seems like a really cool job. So he joined the State Department, and we traveled throughout my childhood to different places. Which is the most extraordinary education, food or otherwise. Oh, amazing. But how unexpected. Do you speak Japanese? You know, I used to speak it pretty fluently, but Mm -hmm. it's so hard to practice. And actually, at sushi, the owner of the sushi restaurant used to tell me that I was too Japanese because I was always really hesitant to speak it because it, I knew that it wasn't perfect. And mm. and so it was embarrassing to me, you know, and too many years of that, I think, made me lose the language. So yes, it's unfortunate. But I'm trying to imagine the connection between you and the chef that day <laughs> when you went to the restaurant, and you told him what a wonderful meal it was. And, and had you told him that you lived in Japan and that you were able to speak directly to the food and what was special about it? Yeah, I actually walked up to him. He was behind the sushi counter making sushi. And I said, gochisou sama deshita, which means... Thank you for this delicious meal, essentially. He must have been delighted. I think he was sort of like, who's this tall redhead (laughs) (laughs) saying this to me? You know, like he he, at first he sort of said, what? (laughs) He was taken aback. Yeah. I realized you said it perfectly. I think that's the only reason I got the job. (laughs) You know, all of these stories are so important because they really do inform the decisions we make later on in our lives. So so this was always part of you, whether you consciously knew that you had this ahead of you is an amazing career. So tell me the name of the French restaurant again. CNO Restaurant. How do you spell that? It's like the CNO Railroad. So C ah. and O. It was in an old railroad lodging house kind mm-hmm. of thing that was turned into a restaurant. And it, it was... A, and it was French. You said it was a very yeah. classic French or more um, It was when they started and then it sort of turned into more of like a new American French bistro sort of place. Oh, it was amazing. That's, that's actually a very funny soundbite, you know, this kind of new American French bistro. Yeah. Like, so what would be some of the dishes that you So, you know, one served? of the most popular was the steak chinoise, which was a flank steak with like a soy cream sauce and mashed potatoes and asparagus. Very, now we, we might think of that food as a little bit dated, but at the time, it, you know, no one had ever had a soy sauce cream sauce before. Yes. So wonderful. it was really, it was a wonderful place. And you... You worked there for eight years yeah. as a waitress? Or so I started as a, host, as a host. Um, mm-hmm. And this restaurant is so cool. It was in this old building, and it would never pass fire code now, but it was grandfathered in. And so the kitchen was on the bottom floor in the bistro bar area, 
And the formal dining room was on the top floor. So if you wanted a white tablecloth meal, you would sit up there. And generally, Mm. uh, it was kind of like an older and more wealthy clientele. And the bar drew a lot of people. Sam Shepard used to hang out there. Wow. Sissy Spacek. Yeah. they, They all used to hang out there. I had the somewhat pleasure of serving him a couple times after he had had a few drinks, (laughs) which is super interesting. But to get the food from the kitchen to the top floor, there was actually a ladder in the kitchen. And so I started as a ladder runner and as a host, and I would run the food up the ladder. Oh, that's extraordinary. Yeah, really amazing. I hope you write about this someday. The the visuals are fantastic. But what's also coming through is your, uh, you were hooked, weren't you? Hooked. Yeah, I can really feel it. Yeah. In in this great restaurant world and and the world of hospitality, right? So food is a piece of it, obviously. And then I just found out that you later on became very knowledgeable about wine. But I'm racing ahead because I really want to go back to your kitchen when you were growing up. So so who was there? And this is, I guess, pre-Japan. So did you, were you actually born in America? No, I was born in Japan. Oh, you were born there. Yeah. My mom and dad from living overseas for so many years really developed a taste for all different kinds of cuisines. Growing up, both of them you know, had a very meat and potatoes kind of existence. My grandfather hated any kind of spices um, mm-hmm. and considered pepper a spice. My, <laughs> and that means he didn't like it? He did not no, like okay. it. Hated it. <laughs> I never met my mom's father, but my mom's mother was of Swedish origin. And so her food was quite plain and simple as well. Mm. But growing up, you know, my mom used to make Greek food all the time because they spent many, many years in Greece. She would make different kinds of Japanese food. Mm. She actually, my father's mother learned how to make Tex-Mex because they had been stationed in San Antonio in the 50s. Right. And this is sort of jumping ahead, but at one of the restaurants that I work for with Jose, it's called Oyamel in D.C., and they have, it's a Mexican restaurant. They have this taco called the Taco Norteño Mm. that's like a Tex-Mex style of cuisine. Um, Lebanese people moved to that part of Mexico right after one of the world wars. I'm not sure which one. And they brought with them cumin. And so (laughs) in that style of Tex-Mex, the cumin really comes through. Mm. And the first time I ever had that taco, it brought me back to sitting at my mom's table and she had made the enchiladas for my grandmother. Mm. And it's such a, like a intense food memory and an intense flavor, you know? Yes. That it's so interesting how food can do that for you. Yes, it can. And when people do talk about their most outstanding food memories from childhood, it usually is more about a smell, right? Mm -hmm. The the smell of a a dish is what really gets embedded in our memory systems. But this is amazing, this spiral for you about how all of these cuisines and your childhood keep on appearing in your life. Yeah. So... Okay, so you're a waitress in this wonderful restaurant for eight years, and then you go to college. I know you have an MBA. Yes. But was this to be in the restaurant business? Was that, or did you have some other ideas? Well, I left working for Jose for a couple of years. I moved, I had been working in Las Vegas at our restaurants there, specifically Chino Poblano, um, which is a Chinese Mexican concept. And I really wanted to leave Las Vegas, and I wanted to try working for a different chef. And a friend of mine, who had also worked for Jose, had moved to Austin and was opening a restaurant with a, a chef named Paul Key. 
who I was pretty familiar with, and I thought he was very he was inspirational. Chef, right? He was yeah. a very famous young chef. Yes. And so I decided to move to Austin to work for him. And Key was one of the best places I've – I mean, I – Learned so much there. And the team that we had in that restaurant was so special. Now all of the core members of that team are GMs, beverage directors, directors of R&D, mini bar head chef, all these amazing positions from this tiny little restaurant in Austin. Sounds like the best school in the world, right? It was amazing. But the namesake of the restaurant, Paul Key, he had sort of a spectacular fall from grace. And so the restaurant really took a nosedive. And and in that moment, I just felt like there were so many many things that I could have done to save the staff or predict Mm -hmm. what was happening with the restaurant. And I really just felt like I wanted to go back to school to learn more about communications in in light of disasters, you know. Um, I wanted to learn more about the financials and how to run a successful operation. I think they call that crisis management. Yes, crisis management, (laughs) exactly. So I decided to go back and get my MBA, and I was looking for another position, and I uh, happened by the offices in D.C. for Think Food Group and went in and said, hey, do you have anything? And they said, yes. We have a director of restaurant operations in Las Vegas. <laughs> and so I said, well, okay, I guess Here I'll go I go back again, there. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but they were so kind. They allowed me to get my MBA. It was an executive MBA through the University of Virginia at the same time as also being the director of restaurant operations out in Vegas. And the two were really in sync. You know, mm. if I was having taking leadership classes or accounting classes or operations classes, I could immediately immediately apply them to the business and then I could use the business as case studies for the program. So, Wow. What an amazing role model you are. So if a woman wants to be in the food and restaurant industry and doesn't necessarily want to be a chef, what is an acceptable road today, do you think, would be a great um, path to follow? Uh, Something similar to yours, I think. Or maybe there are others. There's finance. There's business. You know, I think think in order to be successful in the restaurant industry, it really helps to have been on the ground as a, a server <laughs> or a ladder runner, exactly, or even a host or someone in events. Because if you don't understand sort of the daily grind of a restaurant, it's very hard to improve it operationally or or really be able to run a successful business. I think many young people come out of college especially like a hospitality management program. But if they've never worked as a waitress or they've never been a busser, it can be very difficult to manage people. There's not as much empathy, I guess. Yes. It was so interesting you should mention that because I was going to ask you, what are some of the the words, the touch words that one needs to really love the business and excel in it? And work these grueling hours and also working with the public and problem solving. And there are lots of little crises that happen during people's meals, too. So I was even thinking of the word compassion Mm -hmm. in some ways, but certainly empathy. What might be some other words? I don't think you could be in this business if you weren't passionate about it. It's the hours are too long. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. The hours are too long. It's so much time on your feet that if you didn't truly love the business, then I I don't think that you should think about being a part of it. I think, you know, right now, there's a definite glamour associated with being in restaurants and with being a chef. And 
with sort of being involved in the food industry as a whole. It wasn't and always like that, Charlotte. No, it definitely was not. And even the last 10 years, it's become more and more intense. And so I had so many people in my program, the MBA program, ask me, well, how do I get into it? And it's definitely not the kind of business where if you own the business, you are going to sit at home and golf or whatever, you know, <laughs> like it's not that style of business. And I think a lot of them are scared off by the hard work, which is totally fair. You know, if if it's not something that you feel passionate about, it's a lot. Do you think that's one of the reasons that women maybe have stayed away from management positions until now, until they hear you talk about your terrific life? I actually have been lucky enough to always be around female managers um, mm. at the CNO restaurant. One of my mentors was a woman named Elaine Futhy, who was very influential in the Virginia wine world. And she was amazing. And I think that this industry tends to draw women because I think that it's an industry like any other. But I think you tend to see fewer women chefs in the kitchen and more women in the front of house. But just with being a chef, I think it's always been a male-driven world in many ways. And now that sort of more doors have opened up and we see more f women in leadership positions, it, it doors are opened, I guess. Perfect. And when we come back, I want to hear a bit more about some of the women who really inspired you, but also to talk a little bit about Jose Andres and what your relationship is like and how you work together. Charlotte, do you have a cooking tip to share, maybe for that chicken teriyaki you mentioned? Yes, yeah, so it's the easiest dish to make taste great. All you have to do is grate ginger and garlic together, and then add equal parts soy meeting, which is like a sweetened sake, and sake. Just combine those ingredients and marinate chicken for like 45 minutes to an hour. And it is literally the best chicken teriyaki. I mean, you, all you have to do is steam a little rice with it. And something about the flavors just make it so homey and comforting and amazing. Give it a try and pass it along. Charlotte, so we're growing up in the Me Too movement and I'm very happy to hear you talk about some of the women who have really been mentors. Was there someone else we should know about or talk about? You mentioned the one woman who you worked with in, uh, in the French restaurant. And have there been others? You know, I think in our industry, most women who have sort of come up through the ranks, we all have stories about uncomfortable times mm -hmm. or times that we brushed aside because we thought, that that's how our industry was supposed to be. Yes. And I think one of the luckiest things for me was that spending eight years at the CNO restaurant, there was just a very strong community of women there that didn't take lip from anybody. They were mm -hmm. all, you know, successful nurses or gardeners. They all had their own businesses. Mm. And they were just really strong women who loved to be at the CNO. They loved the business and they took care of it. And like a sisterhood. Yeah. A and there were men that worked there as well, but they really valued the partnership between front of house and back of house. The chef at the time was a man named Thomas Bowles, who 
really, I mean, we were one team. And mm. so occasionally I would get a second job at a different restaurant and I would always leave after a couple months because I just felt like the friction between front of house and back of house, back of house normally being men, was so ludicrous. I mean, it's <laughs> it was, just felt so yeah. childish to me. You're in this business trying to have other people have a good time. Mm. And you can't do that if you're fighting. These are old roles. That yeah, very to much. Changed. I agree. But it does sound like you've been lucky to be part of that group of inspiring women. And now with, with Jose, can you give us an idea of actually what your job is like and what you do and, and how you and Jose work together and how involved you are actually. I know you're involved with the finances, obviously, and the food costs and labor costs and everything. But I'm also interested how involved you are in, in the food, maybe the menu development as well. So, yeah, tell me more. Great. <laughs> um, so I came from Las Vegas where I was the director of two and a half restaurants, really, there was Chino Poblano, Haleo, and then within Haleo was a eight-seat little mini restaurant called E by Jose Andres. And in Vegas, I was sort of the leader of these three. Our home office is in D.C., and so, you know, I was in charge of making sure that our brand was always consistent, that we took care of our employees, that, you know, obviously we had a good reputation in the food world. The best. Yeah, <laughs> and, and also that we were making money. And, you know, the brand versus making money situation is really hard because especially at, at our Haleo brand, we import so much from Spain. We import mm -hmm. the hams. We import bread that's made in a bubblegum factory outside of Barcelona. We What's the connection between the bread and the bubblegum factory? The bread is made in bubblegum machines so that the dough is really elastic. And so when it bakes, the outside is really crunchy and the inside is really airy and light. That's and amazing. Is that a amazing. Jose invention? No, it's a kind of bread from that area. It's called Pan de Cristal. So we use it at Mercado Little Spain. We use it at all of our Jaleos. And it really is the best bread. We've tried making it here in the States. And with the water mineral content, it's mm -hmm. just not the same. So maybe eventually we'll be able to perfect it here. But for now, we import it from Barcelona. Remarkable. So as you can imagine, that's not exactly great for food costs. So you need to find efficiencies in other places. And there's always kind of that struggle of making money versus having the best quality product. And, and I think that can be difficult. Here at Mercado Little Spain, I mean, we just opened in March and we've never opened a market. We've never opened anything that big. It's 35,000 square feet. It is such an exciting concept. And it was Amazing. was patterned after the Boqueria in Barcelona. The Boqueria or the Mercado San Miguel in Madrid. Ah. And it was really important to us for it to have that sort of Spanish Mercado feel. It does. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and that's one of the best things is, you know, I listen to guests walking around and, and I always hear, oh, it feels like we're in Spain again. Or, oh, there's that cheese that we had in Spain. Or... And that is so exciting to me. I, I love it that it feels the way that it should, you know. But opening, we we open sort of gradually so we can make sure that each little place was up and running before we moved on to the next. And so it took about two and a half months to get fully open. And it, it was so hard. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine. You know, when you're hiring 350 people, it's wow. so stressful to not know everyone's name and to not mm. know kind of their background. And it's so stressful to make sure that all the little details are being hit. And, you know, I know 
Jose really feels a strong connection to the project. It's he often says that it's like his love letter to Spain. Mm. Um, the special thing about it is that we've got dishes from all over Spain, and so to a Spaniard, you mean all the regions, all the different are represented. regions, mm-hmm. yeah. So to a Spaniard, it's cool because you can have all the things that you're looking for. But it would be sort of akin to going to like an American cafe somewhere else in the world and eating clam chowder with Texas barbecue. It might be sort of strange, but you'd be really excited to have Sounds both like of your them. childhood, Charlotte. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so now that we're fully open, we're focused on the details and focused on streamlining operations and making money. It's always hard to make money in your first right. year. Restaurants need to be sustainable, not exactly. just sexy and interesting and, you know, stuff to write about for food critics <laughs> uh, because you have a lot of people to support, right? Yeah. So there are 350 employees, 35,000 square feet. How many restaurant kiosks or boutiques do you have? So we've got three full-service restaurants. We have a tapas bar that's connected to our wine bar. We've got a cocktail bar. And then we've got about 11 different kiosks. And so it's sort of broken up into four areas. We we have the Spanish diner, which pretty much is the most self-sustaining. It's kind of off on its own on the side there. And then we have uh, teams of managers for Mar and Vinos La Barra. We've got a team of managers for Lena and Barcelona. And then we have a team of managers for the kiosks. And then we have a commissary in back as well that provides us with all the prepped items. So, And does everyone report to you? No, just front of house. And so I have a, there's a culinary operations director that's sort of my counterpart. So he handles all the back of house. And where's the intersection? Do you get a little bit involved in the food or the menu development? More so from an operation side. So Mm -hmm. if we notice that guests are really looking for a specific item, you know, that's something I'll bring up in meetings or... You know, if there's different items that we could put on the menu to either increase the experience or increase the check average, we talk about that too. But we have a really talented team of chefs that handle all the actual menu recipe creation. Well, going back to your paradigm of uh, women in the front and men in the back of the house, are most of the, the chefs men? Or do you have yes? Women? Actually, most of them are. Uh-oh. We have um, we have two really talented female chefs, and then weirdly, it's mostly women in the front of house. I've never worked with so many talented women before in my life. Fantastic. Maybe that's why the place feels so great and joyful. I mean, it was a smash hit from the minute you opened your doors. That's, oh, thank that's you. For sure. How many people do you think eat there every day? It's hard to tell because a lot of people just sort of come through and maybe get a snack and then leave. But we've counted between four and 6,000 people walking through on a daily basis. Every day? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's it's crazy. And you're the director of restaurants. Wow, Charlotte. (laughs) I was so excited to to hear more about what what you actually did. So uh, tell us a little bit more about about Jose, this extraordinary man that you work work with and for. You brought up the Me Too movement and, you know, at that movement's inception a couple years ago, I was talking with a couple other uh, female managers that also worked with us in Las Vegas. And we all just felt so grateful to work for a chef who, who is just, there's never anything like that about him. You know, I, I can't imagine him being inappropriate. He's a really amazing man. And he's also really just focused on the culinary part or the philanthropic part. 
you know, we had all heard stories in the industry of some of the chefs that that were indicted, Mario Batali and, and others. And I never wanted to work for any of them because mm. I never wanted to be a part of a culture like that. And I think it's easy as a woman to sort of ignore it or push it to the side or try not to let it affect you. And I think we've all been in in places like that. We've all worked in places like that. But I always felt really grateful to work for Jose. He's not like that. No. I mean, he loves life. He loves people. He loves women in the sense of respect, right, and empowering. Yeah, definitely. And that's just you know, who he is. On as the much day... as he loves vegetables, I think. <laughs> <laughs> On the day of my graduation, I was sitting in the Tucson airport waiting for a flight connection. And I was having a cup of coffee and my phone rang and I was still working in Las Vegas. And it, the caller ID said, Jose Andres. And I thought, oh, no, what's happening? <laughs> so I picked it up and I said, hi, Jose. And he said, congratulations. I heard you're graduating today or tomorrow. Oh. And I just thought it was the nicest thing. You know, um, he didn't have to do that. He has thousands of people that work for him. And I, I know him because I've worked for him for quite some time, almost yes. about 10 years. And I know that he trusts me to look after his restaurants. And that's that makes me feel really great, you know. This is such a happy, positive restaurant story. It's really wonderful. Do you like to cook? And do you cook? And do you cook for yourself? Yeah, definitely. I, I wish I had more time to do it, but I do love to cook. I love throwing huge dinner parties. Really? You don't work hard enough? So <laughs> on your days off, you like to shop and there's schlep just, and cook? And there's nothing better than serve. sitting around a table with, uh, with a bunch of really great friends that, and eating an amazing meal. Okay, Charlotte. So here, my favorite question, what is the favorite meal you have made? Like one you were the most proud of, either because the execution was so great or it was so creative or you came up with crazy ideas? Does anything stand out for you? Yeah, so there's actually two. One was, gosh, it was about... 12, 15 years ago, maybe, mm -hmm. I had this friend named Rick Easton who actually just moved to the area and opened Bread and Salt Bakery in Jersey City. Oh, wow. Which yes. is amazing. I've you have to check it things. out. Thank you. So he and I made this crazy Middle Eastern meal together that was like, I don't even know how many dishes we made, but we must have, it must have been like a four course meal for like 20 people. Wow. And I made this, he, he made everything and then i made the two main dishes and we sort of like collaborated on on a lot of the little appetizers mm -hmm. but the mise, I, right? yeah, exactly right. um but what i made like made? a lamb and apricot dish and then also a whole roasted fish dish mm. with like a tahini sauce on it that Very was delicious impressive. and you were so ahead of your time right that <laughs> today 15 years later is you know it's sort of the 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 palate of the moment all of the flavors from the middle east yeah and you mentioned there was another one so a few cool. years ago, I love cooking Japanese food because oh. it's my absolute comfort food. And I had a friend visiting from out of town. This is in Texas. And so I decided to cook this huge Japanese dinner. And we had all these little like pickles and salads. And and you made all of this? All of it. Yeah. Ooh. There was like a chicken teriyaki, which is like if I'm sad or not feeling well. That's like my go-to. Chicken teriyaki? Yeah. Isn't that weird? I'll never eat it again and not think about you. <laughs> it's such a strange sad. thing. <laughs> um, I think we all have a dish like that. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. It's just, lucky. I feel like chicken teriyaki is like a weird one, you know? <laughs> 
but it's I hope easy you haven't to make. had it recently. No, I haven't. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so that was just a really nice meal. We had like 16 people sort of sitting around outside, and it was just a really great meal. I'm quite impressed. And now I'd like to know the best meal or the most outstanding meal you've ever had. Mm. I mean, I know you've been all over the world and, and you've been in the industry for a long time, but is there one that's outstanding to you? So the first time I ever ate at A by Jose Andres in Las Vegas, I had never really had that style of cooking before. And which was the restaurant? E. It's called uh, oh, just, just E. e. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And that's it's uh, 21 courses. It's all sort of avant-garde cuisine. Mm. It's in the style of mini bar, which Jose also does in D.C., and I never had um, that style of cooking before, but I was so blown away by the meal that on the drive home, and and I I wasn't even drinking Too during much. the meal. <laughs> I think I had like a glass of wine or something, oh. but I think I was working, you know, mm-hmm. like trying the food. But on the way home, I spontaneously burst into song. <laughs> and I've what never done that? that before, but I was just so happy. Like I just felt transcendent from the meal. And I think when you have a meal like that, it's so special, you know. That's pretty remarkable. I can't remember <laughs> the last meal where I broke it into song. Um, so when we come back, I'd like to talk a little bit more about uh, a legacy recipe, what's meaningful to you now, and what's up for you. Great. And the gate to the garden of fulfilled desire is reached by a road. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold. And check out everything I'm up to on my website at roseangold.com. I know Mercado Little Spain. Is that the, the real name? Yes. Is that how it's put together? Mercado Little Spain. And it's in Hudson Yards, right next to the vessel. And it's just a very exciting place to be. It's like the newest hotspot in New York for New Yorkers and for tourists. Uh, what are some of the daily challenges, though, of running such a big operation for you, personal or or business? I think having it be in such a new neighborhood, it's a new market for me personally, um, New York is, and also it's a brand new business. It's been difficult on a daily basis to sort of predict what's going to happen. You know, we thought we would be slower for Labor Day because most of New York leaves for that weekend. But in fact, we were busier on Labor Day than any other weekend for the past two months, which, you know, as a manager and not just a director of operations, but also a manager, I spent a solid three hours as like the Bocatas kiosk cashier. Um, <laughs> and we gave great service that day. <laughs> I <bet>. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that, you know, things like that are very important. Sometimes I think the managers that work for me feel like it's a deficiency in their performance when I step back behind a kiosk and a, I'm a cashier mm-hmm. for a couple hours. Mm-hmm. And I've made sure that nobody feels that way because they're all amazing. It's just that it's really important for me to be able to empathize with every single role that people play on the floor. I'm not able to make sure that the operation is running smoothly or that we're doing everything we can do to be thought of well by our clientele unless I can step into every single role. And so when I'm, say, you know, a cashier at our bakery, then I sort of can see the operations from behind there and Mm. think about 
well, do we need this person actually over here instead of over here? Do we need to offer a different size of this or that? What are people asking for? And so I think that on a day-to-day basis, we're still finding those things out every day. Um, And it's a constantly changing thing. It's such a huge operation that in the space of 10 minutes, I can have someone come up to me and say, someone left this phone behind. And then someone else comes up to me and says, this lady just fainted in the bathroom. And then someone else comes up to me and says, so-and-so just cut themselves. And then the security guard comes up and says, you know, the police are here for for some reason to look for like a missing lady, you know, and it's just like... And this all comes back to you. You are the... uh, Yeah. And especially if my boss isn't there, I'm, I'm the person, you know. What extraordinary training for you. It's, <laughs> it's really amazing. fascinating. I mean, you know, so I think people don't realize really what the depth and complexity of what goes on. I'm thinking about that fact that you had 5,000 more people than you were expecting. It's very hard to just jump on a, you know, the 20 pound bag of potatoes and start peeling them to make the potatoes bravas, mm-hmm. right? Or however you say, patatas bravas? Patatas There's, bravas, yes, yes. It's a very classic dish <laughs> and they're so good there. So these are the intricacies of, of being you know, in the business. But you do feel like you have time for social life. And if you also wanted to, this is something that comes up a lot with women. Can they really have it all? Can they choose at some point to have a career in the food world and maybe have a family or children or... Mm-hmm. Do you think there's some hope for balance maybe in a couple of months from now? Definitely. I think it's already gotten a lot easier, which is great. I already, you know, have to have weekends off and have, well, they're not the traditional weekends, Saturday, Sunday, but my weekend is Wednesday, Thursday. And um, I've, I've found that I'm able to really start experiencing life in New York, which is great. You know, I think the difficult part about having a balanced life in the restaurant industry is it's... You have to make that balance. Um, Mm -hmm. Actually, one of the most inspirational articles I've ever read was Gabrielle Hamilton's article. It was way back in like 2001 or 2002 in Food and Wine. And it was all about kind of the fallacies of of being a chef in the restaurant industry. And it was right when farmer's markets were in vogue and this sort of image of this chef in crisp whites at the (laughs) farmer's market picking and choosing the produce for that night. It was right when that sort of image was sort of in everyone's mind, you know, Mm -hmm. and the article is so amazing because she just cut through all the BS and said, I'm running my own restaurant. I don't have time to do that. I what I want is to make sure my staff is happy. We get through a a night successfully. I want to be able to have, you know, some time to myself, the personal time as well. Mm. And so in order to fit all that together, I don't have time to go to the farmer's market. I like the Goya chickpeas, you know? And I just thought, yes, <laughs> that is, very honest, <laughs> that is so it? true. <laughs> and so I think, you know, you could make it be 24-7 if you wanted to. And I've certainly been guilty of that in the past. And I've had managers who have said, stop, like you are not at work. You should not be emailing back, you know, go on vacation, don't worry about it. And I've really learned a lot from from those people. And so I try really hard to compartmentalize work and personal life. We live in a 24-7 world, right? Mm-hmm. And the restaurant business certainly is. So this is wonderful advice even your co-workers are giving you. Definitely. Sounds like a very happy family. Tell me about staff meals really quick, because when I used to work in restaurants, I loved staff meals when everyone sat down and ate together. Very often it was just leftovers, but sometimes it was the best thing in the house. So do you, how, do, how do you manage that for so many so people? So at Mercado, we're so 24-7 that it's really hard to be able to 
to provide that, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which is a, an unfortunate thing. I think we're always sort of looking for ways that eventually we will be able to provide that. But it's definitely the first restaurant I've ever worked in where we're not able to do that just because of the sheer volume and how it never stops. But I think that that is, you know, at Key, we would set up two long tables. Every person front and back would sit down at the table. We had plates, fork, knife, spoon, Mm. and then we would pass the dishes and serve each other, you know, and and sit for half an hour and be able to eat. And that was really special. Yeah, that was always a nice memory for me. So Charlotte, tell me about your legacy recipe now that we know you're such a good cook. (laughs) Actually, my favorite recipe is a recipe for pie crust that my mom taught me way back when. And it's just stayed with me for since then, because it's so easy. And she gave it to me over the phone one day because she makes the best pies. Mm. And I really wanted to make a pie for a friend whose birthday it was and his favorite dessert was pie. So Mm. um, I called her up and I said, Mom, I have no idea how to make a pie crust. I've heard it's really hard. And she said, you take two cups of flour and a little bit of salt, blend it up in the Cuisinart, take a half pound of butter, Cold, cut it up into cubes, put it in the Cuisinart, pulse it five seconds until it looks like little corn niblets. And then you take two egg yolks in a half cup measuring cup, fill the rest with ice water, pour it in slowly. Ten seconds later, it's done. And I thought, that's crazy. Like, (laughs) what is it? Like 10 seconds, 11 seconds. But I timed it. And sure enough, like 10 seconds later, there's the pie dough. And um, I haven't forgotten it since. So I always Amazing. figured if I like went on Top Chef or something, I would be <laughs> I would be good. <laughs> Is that a bottom crust and a top crust, or just... it's actually it makes two pies with a bottom and a top crust? That's fantastic. And what did you make for the, your friend? Strawberry rhubarb. Mm. So good. Well, you you come across as a very passionate, empathic person, and these are beautiful qualities for a leader. And for a woman who is running such an extraordinary uh, operation for Jose Andres, and the name of the company is Think Food Group. That's the name of, that's the umbrella organization. And just speaking of empathy, Charlotte, do you think you'll ever have a chance to go with Jose to any of his rescue uh, food mission? I don't even know what to call them, right? But he's kind of his emergency cooking Mm -hmm. for Puerto Rico. And then he went to the 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 Bahamas Bahamas now. Or he's not there anymore, but he was there, I think, yesterday. Do you think you'll ever get a chance to to go with him? I would like to, but I think that the people that are able to make the most difference are are people that are the chefs in our company. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think You know, certainly I would be able to help with that. In the past, I've always just sent my team and then watched the the home base, you know. But I would definitely love to help in whatever way I can. Well, of course you are because you are the anchor, right, that allows his restaurants to stay open and and run so smoothly. Such a pleasure. So um, as I ask everyone, Charlotte, what does One Woman Kitchen mean to you? It means, I think, that Especially in the industry, historically, it's been men in the kitchen, but in the homes, it's always been women in the kitchen. And I think now we see sort of those gender roles reversing. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it's about entrepreneurship. It's about trying new things. It's about not just sort of the solitary nature of building a business by yourself or, or, you know, being in the kitchen alone, 
it also leads you to think of how strong that you can be in that role, you know? And I think that that's a very special thing. Beautiful. Thank you, Charlotte. And thank you to all of you for joining me in my kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold. One Woman Kitchen is produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2019. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at rosannegold.com. And if you're wondering about my beautiful theme music, it's called The Garden, written and performed by award-winning singer-songwriter Audrey Appleby. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Connect.